Hello, everybody. My name is Rob Weinberg, and I'm the founding editor of The Correspondent. Ten years ago, Rolf Dobelli's essay, Avoid News, inspired me to look at journalism in a completely different way. As editor-in-chief of NRC Next, I threw much of the daily news out of the newspaper and shifted our focus to deeper developments. Later, I founded The Correspondent as an antidote to the daily news grind. Last Monday, I had the honor to speak to the Swiss author himself about his news philosophy. We had a great and informative conversation about the failings of news and about more philosophical questions like how far does your sphere of influence reach in the world? Our conversation was followed by sharp, challenging questions from correspondent members in the audience. By popular demand, we recorded the whole evening, so you can listen to it here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Have fun listening. I wanted to um, start this evening by um, uh, telling a little bit about how I met Rolf for the first time, uh, because it's um, quite an interesting story with a quite disruptive end. It was 2011. I was editor-in-chief of NRC Next, And I, I became editor in 2010, and I have written a, a, about news for a couple of times. I was critical about news. I thought things could be changed. Um, and because I did that, one of the editors, Arya van Vele, who now works at The Correspondent, you may know him, uh, he came to my desk at, uh, in the morning one time, and he gave me an essay. And the title was Avoid News by Rolf Dobelli. And I never heard of this author before. He was a Swiss author, originally published in German. This was a translation in English. And he said, I think you'll like this. So I read it, and indeed, I liked it very much. Actually, I liked it so much that we decided to publish the essay. And for a print newspaper, the essay was quite long. 5,500-something words, which translated to 16 whole pages in the newspaper. And we were like, should we make a short version? And then the first paragraph of the essay says, probably this essay is too long for you to read. So we decided to publish the whole essay at once. And we said, weg met het nieuws. Stop reading the news on the front page. And the next day, we didn't know what happened. Because we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters of readers. We didn't know any response like that before. And also hundreds and hundreds of cancellations. People who said, great essay, loved it, thank you, I'm going to cancel my subscription to the newspaper. Actually, somebody of the customer service of NRC came up and said, what are you doing? But also a lot of people who said, this essay really made an, an impact on me, I'm going to try to follow its rules. And a newspaper that actually uh, um, has the guts to publish such a story, I like it. So a lot of people stayed. And we read it as well, the editors in the newsroom. And we were completely blown away by it. Actually, I remember one of the editors, Tali Africado, who also works at the Correspondent uh, right now. I took them all with me. Uh, she came in the next morning and she was like, we're doing it all wrong. Oh my God. And she was actually right. So we tried to make a newspaper like Rolf Dobelli would read it. And that got me fired. So thank you, Rolf. But luckily, uh, a year later, I was fired, and luckily it was a blessing in disguise because obviously that was the opportunity to uh, start the correspondent based on basically an anti-news philosophy. So thank you for being here, Rolf. Thank you so much. Um, uh, if you don't have it yet, buy it afterwards. Um, I wanted to start to ask you uh, about the dark time. You were once a news addict. 
What did your day look like? First of all, I have to say thank you so much for inviting me up on stage. Sure. Thank you for being here. And it's clearly not the only reason why, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you then found you it's were on that anti-news trip for, for a while before uh, that, that essay hit. So I was your average news junkie before. So I was reading, you know, as a young man, I was reading the newspaper. We had the newspaper at home, a subscription. I was watching the uh, television news every night because that was how we were grown up in the family. Every evening at 7.30, exactly 7.30, that was when the family gathered in front of the TV. Then the, the news came. Then the internet came about. And then I was starting to read everything that was on the internet. Of course, everything was free at that time, so you could read all the articles, and I felt really connected to the world. So I was reading up on everything. Until uh, maybe about 15 years ago, I realized, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm reading thousands of news stories almost every week. And what does it really do for me? What does it get me? And I asked myself two questions. Question number one is, do I understand the world better now? I had to say no to that question. And then the second question I asked myself is, do I at least take better decisions for my private life, for business, for the writing, for my family? And I also had to say no to that. Then that's when I started to downscale uh, my news consumption. I didn't go cold turkey right away. I kind of uh, went down... Uh, kind of publication by publication, until then finally about 10 years ago I decided to completely quit news consumption. But even as a child I had some suspicion that something might be wrong. So we had this, this daily subscription to a newspaper. We lived in Lucerne, it's, it's a small town in Switzerland, pretty town. They had a town news, uh, newspaper uh, Monday until Saturday. They didn't have a Sunday uh, edition, but on Monday the newspaper was as thick as the Tuesday edition or the Wednesday edition, but it covered two days. So uh, even as a child, I was like, what's, what's, is, is there a day missing? They're not reporting on it, and what, what's happening? How can, can it be the same length? And also the Tagesschau, I don't know how you call it here in... Journal, uh, yeah. Okay, the journal. Uh, no matter if a lot happened or little happened in the world, it had the same length all the time. And I'm like, yeah, this something is something's fishy here. Mm -hmm. So anyway, 10 years ago, I cut news consumption completely. Uh, haven't been uh, to online news. I haven't read a newspaper. Uh, haven't watched that journal. And and I've been I've been fine ever since. And I haven't really missed anything <laughs> big. And if something big happens, you'll hear about it. So you know who the president of the United States is. Yes, yes. that I, that I Th know. That Eventually you know. that trickles through. Trickles through, it yes. trickles through. Um, we actually um, will talk a little bit about it later because Donald Trump was one of the setbacks in this non-news diet. But l let me ask you this. Why did you decide to stop reading, following the news? What was the eventual argument you told yourself, this is not what I want to know or need to know? Well, I think those two questions that I had to say no to, do I understand the world better and do I take better decisions, these, these were the kind of deciding thing. But later on, I found more and more arguments for sticking uh, with this experiment. First, I thought I'll do it for a couple of months. I'll stay off news, I'll see how it goes, I can always go back. But I liked it so much that I kept going. <laughs> right. uh, 
without news for 10 years now. Eventually, I collected arguments for it, which found their way into that essay. Some of the arguments are from psychology, uh, psychological research. Some I have from Nassim Taleb, which is another writer. Uh, some I have uh, found in philosophy uh, that I placed in. So I have a collection of arguments now. But 29, actually, it's, I think. It's, oh, you, you counted them? Uh, about okay. 29 okay. arguments <laughs> against the consumption of news. So, but, but I think the main argument is, is really the irrelevance of, of most of the news that it consumed at, at the waste of time. And in on ter terms of relevance, let's just do a, a poll here. An average consumer consumes about 30,000 news pieces a year. 30,000. 30,000. Now you're going to say, no, the belly is completely crazy. 30,000, this cannot be true. Well, this is less than 100 per day. You, most consumers reach that point by lunch, by noon time. So you scroll through the, through the feed a little bit. You go check out a couple of news sites. Uh, maybe you have your newspaper in the morning. Maybe you tune into radio on the way to work. There go 100 news messages. You know, President X shook President Y's hand. An airplane crashed somewhere. Uh, you know, a volcano exploded. Stuff like that. And 30,000 news messages a year. Now ask yourself, in the last year, 2019, from the 1st of January until the 31st of December, out of these 30,000 news messages, do you find one or two that have allowed you to make a better decision for your life? Out of the 30,000, think about it for, for a moment. You probably are hard-pressed to even come up with 10 news stories you consumed out of the 30,000. It's going to be very hard to find. Maybe you'll find one, but even if you find one news message out of 30,000, it's really miserable quota in terms of relevance. So most news is entertainment. Most news is pure entertainment. The, the journal, the Tagesschau, is, is entertainment. It's an entertainment show. It's not relevant to most people. Maybe, maybe we should also, because actually a couple of members asked this question below your piece that we published on The Correspondent. What is your definition of news? What do you consider news? Because obviously you have journalism and there's lots of kinds of journalism like art. Uh, not just, art is not just paintings, right? It's, it's many things. The same goes for journalism. What, do you, what is your definition of news? Yeah, that's, that's very important to, to clarify this. So news is whatever... It are these short pieces from all over the world, news from all over the world, breaking news, it's sometimes called top world headlines, it's called on CNN. It's, it's these little pieces from all over the world, short, little, catchy pieces that uh, you just want to consume. This is what I call news. And opposed to news are good formats, are the long formats. So whatever is long and go deep, that has explanatory power, that give you the connections that give you the generators of how events happen. Uh, long pieces that go deep, this is the good stuff. News are the short pieces, which is the bad stuff. And most of the free news that what you see free on the internet, it's all the short little news crap that you don't need. Also, the journal stuff is too short to even go deep. You cannot explain anything in the world with that. So I'm interested in the long formats or the ultra-long formats, which are books. So uh, <laughs> articles are long formats, and then you have ultra-long articles, which, which by definition are books, or documentaries, which also go deep in one subject. Mm -hmm. These are the good formats. Right. And this, this is why I love what you're doing at The Correspondent, because you're going deep. You have the long formats. Mm -hmm. So short messages from all around the world. I would add 
uh, because I've thought about this subject obviously a lot, and um, my definition, the, the definition of news I, I ended up with was sensational, exceptional, current events, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So it's sensational because it's usually highly visible. Uh, it's exceptional because the things that are the, the, um, the least common get the most, attract the most attention. Uh, they're current. They have to be today. Uh, that, that's mo mostly uh, what news is about. And it's mostly events. It's not developments. It's not structures. It's events. It's mm -hmm. Things that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Great definition. That's a great, great definition. definition. I should have okay. taken that in take, my book. Take it. Yeah. Okay. You can borrow it. Next um, edition. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, pretty much... Uh, those messages paint a picture of the exceptional, right? It's the thing that is not common that happens. What are other downsides to looking at the world through that lens? You call news, what sugar is to the body, news is to the mind, basically. Could you explain that? Yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my metaphor. What sugar is to the body, we love sugar. I mean, that's why we crave sugary stuff. And you, we can take in amounts, we are evolutionarily trained to eat sugar and fats, but it has long-term consequences if you just eat sugar limitless. And the same happens to news. At the beginning, we can swallow limitless quantities of those news pieces, but long-term effects will show up. So one of the long-term effects of reading a lot of news, and I saw this in my own life, I see it when I was a news junkie, but I see it in, in other people's lives who are news junkies right now. We train our brain to scan a lot of stories very superficially, very fast when we consume news. And whenever you train a part of your brain, you untrain a certain other part of your brain. And the, the part you untrain is the ability to concentrate, to focus, to read for a long time. So a lot of people who consume a lot of news, they can't read 10 pages anymore without getting tired. And that wasn't the case in the past. Um, people could sit for hours reading a book, for example, or long articles. So if we train our brain on news, we will lose the ability to focus for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have to relearn this again. So this is one of the downsides of news consumption. Another one is very simple. It's time. An average consumer, we know this from, from studies, in the US, but in, in Europe, it will be roughly the same. An average news consumer spends about 60 to 90 minutes a day on news consumption. You know, you get up in the morning, you might flip through the, through the newspaper, uh, again, on the way to work, you tune into the radio. During work, you know, when I, whenever it, it gets hard writing that email, <laughs> you kind of go check out some news website, and you see what's happening here, and you go to New York Times, and you go to whatever the Guardian, what they're saying, and then all of a sudden, you, there, there goes 20 minutes, and then you have have to refocus back, where was I? What did I really want to write in that email? And then comes lunchtime, you kind of scroll through, and the same in the afternoon and in the evening, you watch the journal and, and so on. So 60 to 90 minutes per day. That is one working day per week that you will lose by consuming news. That's more than a month per year. So my year still has 12 months, and the average consumer's year only has 11 months left. So I gain an additional month just for free, and I can do anything with that month. So time consumption is really a problem with, uh, when, when it comes to news. And there are other effects. You have a little stress response in your body when you consume news, because most of the news is rather negative news. And it's rather negative, we call this in media science, it's, it's the negativity bias. Negative news because our brain 
reacts more to negative events or negative messages than to positive events. That has an evolutionary reason why we do this, because negative events would kill you, positive events would make you happy, but you'd rather not get killed than, than being happy evolutionarily. So it makes a lot of sense that our brain reacts to negative events and negative stories, negative messages. And that's why journalism feeds more negative stuff. And you will have a small stress response in your body every time you read something negative or you hear something negative. And that stress response accumulates to a constant level of stress. And we know exactly what happens to our bodies when we are exposed to chronic stress. It's the same thing that you experience when you have, for example, a bad relationship. You're in a bad relationship for 10 years. It's horrible stress. You're going to die sooner because a lot of things happen in your body, the cells don't repair and so on, uh, or if you have a bad boss and you have to go every day and see that face. And that gives you a chronic stress response. You will not live as long as you would without that chronic stress response. So this is a bodily response to, to news consumption and so on and so on. Right. Again, about 29, 29, of, 29 those, yes. of those. Do you think, because you, you've written this essay and now turned it into a book, a little bit before social media became such an apparent and such a big component of our lives. You tweeted seven years ago that you stopped tweeting, but uh, a lot of us are on social media constantly. Do you think social media worsens the effects of, that you describe with news? Yeah, I, I think so. My book came 10 years too late, so I should have done the book right after doing the essay. The essay right. But I wanted to write other books in between, and they took a little bit longer. So now it's 10 years too late otherwise. And now there's tons of books out there on, so, on, the, on the problems of social media. So I didn't want to get into the same thing. That's why I, I kept it to the news. But social media really made it worse, because now you get that push also um, through social media that is personalized to you, which makes it even worse to get out of, because it is really perfectly fit to your brain. And in the future, it'll be even worse because algorithms will be able to target those news pieces that fit exactly your personality. But even worse, in a couple of years, AI, artificial intelligence, will create news pieces based on real events or completely fake stuff, not just text, but also videos personalized to your the structure of your brain. And it will be impossible to even exit at the news consumption. So if you want to get out, do it now. <laughs> it's, never gonna, it's, it's only going to get harder to get out of it. One of the um, reasons that news has been fascinating to me for a long time is the misunderstandings it can create. Uh, you talk about a couple in your book as well. Can you boil down for us, because you told one of the reasons you stopped consuming news is it didn't help you understand anything better. Uh, how the world works on a more fundamental level. Could you explain to us what misunderstandings news perpetuates about the world around us? Mm -hmm. So I, I want to understand the world, and I want to get a, a complete, as complete of an understanding as I possibly can. Now, events are, by creating an understanding of the world, by just looking at events, events are just like bubbles on the surface. Something happens here, something happens there, you know, here is a government, uh, you know, collapses, uh, here is a coup, here two presidents meet, and so on. These are events, but they are generated by something more 
fundamental. And I try to find out those hidden generators of these events. How do the hidden generators of the events work? And you cannot do that by just looking at those epiphenomena on the surface, but these events, but by creating some sort of a theory and understanding of how these generators work. I think that's what you are also trying to achieve with the correspondent, to go deep and to find the sources of where does this all come. And you need to have some sort of an understanding of that world, and that takes a lot of years of, 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 of reading, of going, if you want to understand Syria, for example, the war in Syria, you can read a thousand, maybe five thousand news pieces about Syria, but these are just going to be flickerings on the surface. So a bomb exploded here, some troops moved here, some, some terrible things happened there. But to really understand Syria, just forget about the news. Read one book about Syria, and you will understand Syria much better than reading 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 news pieces. Plus, it's also more efficient because it'll take you less time. So that's when you understand the history of the place, how they drew the lines in the sands, how the Brits and the French divided up that piece of land. And you get not a complete knowledge. You will never get a complete knowledge, but you get much closer to what's happening there right now. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about, um, at least you did this afternoon when you talked to our newsroom, about circles of competence, the, the things you know a lot about. Uh, you know a lot about cognitive psychology and also a lot about human biases. And it seems to me that you see a lot of human biases in news or emphasized by news or amplified by news. Could you mention the biases that are inherent to news? that are amplified by news and that people need to be conscious of when they watch news. Mm -hmm. so, so one is the confirmation bias, which is kind of the father or the mother of all thinking errors. We have a theory in our mind. Um, I'll give you a couple of numbers. Um, two, four, six, eight, and what is the next number? Now, uh, before you give me the next number, I have it in my mind, the next number, but I want you to give me the rule why, how I built these numbers, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and it continues after 10. According to which rule did I, did I construct this series of numbers? But before you do that, I want you to test your own theory that you have now in mind and tell me a number, and I will tell you, yes, it confirms to that rule that I have in mind or not. So if you tell me, for example, 12, does it fit the rule? I will tell you, yes, it fits the rule. And try with a couple of numbers, and then when you think you have it, uh, let me know. So who wants to throw up a, a number? 16, what? 14. 14, yes, 14 fits to the rule I have in my mind. Who else wants to try with a number? 21, that's good. Yes, it fits the rule. So, <laughs> so does anybody guess what the rule is I have in mind? Okay. The rule is the next number has to be higher than the previous number. <laughs> now, why did we play this game? We played this game because we all had a theory in our mind, and that is even numbers, so add two. 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, and so on. But in order to get to the truth, we need to try to undermine our favorite theory. Only then you will get to that truth, which is that rule you want to find out. So, and that's called disconfirming evidence. You have to look for disconfirming evidence, evidence that undermines your favorite theory of add two. And you did that with the number 21 because it didn't fit it. So you have to actively fight that tendency of only thinking about confirmatory confirmation numbers or confirmation information that fits your theory. Now, if you consume a lot of news pieces, 
You can have the craziest theory of the world in your mind, and you will always find news pieces that support your crazy idea about the world. And that's the danger, that's the confirmation bias. That's one of those cognitive errors that will be accentuated by news consumption. That is, that is one of them. Mm-hmm. Another one is the availability bias. When we need information to make a decision, we tend to look at information that's available to us right here in front of our desk or in front of our minds, but not at, at information that might not be available, but more important. Because we are lazy people, we don't go out and actively search for stuff. We just kind of take whatever is here and take a decision. That's the availability bias. It's a big one also in cognitive science. And the more news you consume, the more is of stuff is just available to you. And that's the first thing you will think about it. It might not be relevant, but you'll just take it as a basis mm-hmm. for making decisions. Right. It's so there. These are, it's there. So these are, these are two of them. And what misunderstandings do they push? Because I have a metaphor to try to convey what is missing from news. It's the metaphor I always use is news is like the weather. It's what the temperature is today. But if you look at the weather report every day, you will never see the climate changing, right? If our only source of information was journalism, news journalism, uh, climate change would not have been discovered, basically, because we only look at this one day at a time. If you want to see the common threat and you want to see that the temperature is rising on a longer scale, you have to have a different perspective, right? Are there other perspectives you got or understandings of the world you got by quitting the news and looking at other things? What have you learned? Yeah, so instead of consuming news, again, I I read the long formats and, 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 and books. And with that, you can convey certain things that news will not be able to pick up. So like you said, beautifully, how you define news are current events that are sensational sensational, exceptional exceptional and so on. So automatically you exclude a lot of things that will never make it into into the news. Things that are slow developments, like the climate, is, is very slow to develop. You can't personalize it. You can't really put a face on certain things that is automatically excluded as a thing that is abstract, will not make it into the classical news because it's hard to explain. So here is an example, is resistance to antibiotics. So we have our antibiotics, and they will run out eventually. Bacteria will get resistant to it more and more, and we have a hard time coming up with a power drug that will really cure us. That is a very slow development. That takes place over now 20 years and will continue to evolve. But that is such an abstract topic, but a very important topic to solve. You can't personalize it. There's no explosion. There's no video you can do about it. You can show bacteria in a, in a Petri dish, but how exciting is that? So <laughs> that's why when you get off the news consumption, you will more and more gravitate towards developments that are longer term, but more important mm-hmm. than you know which president shook hands to which president and which pop star divorced his, her, whatever, lover. Right, right. Now, let's play devil's advocate for a second. Uh, And I get this question a lot from journalists as well when I talk about news, which is, well, it's all fine that you want to dig deeper into structural developments and understand the, the world in a more foundational way, but you still need people reporting on the events as well. Let's take the wildfires in Australia as an example. 
they might be the consequence of climate change, a foundational issue. They might be the consequence of droughts that build up over a longer period of time. But still, you have to know about these things happening to understand the consequences of these deeper lying structures. So, in other words, you can't do without the news because these events are the way these structural realities appear to us. What would you say to a journalist who would um, ask you that question? Yeah. I, I, would, I would really turn it completely around. I would say, first, you need to have a foundational idea of, of these generators to understand the world. And then you can, you can make hypotheses. What, what could be the epiphenomena? What could happen out of this? Mm -hmm. And then you would maybe expect a wildfire. Maybe you would expect something else. But you need to first have a theory. By just looking at phenomena, you cannot create the theory by itself. So it's much more important to have that theory. And you can do without the epiphenomena. So I heard there's some stuff going on in the Middle East right now. I only saw it because, I, <clears throat> first of all, today at the hotel in Amsterdam, uh, in the hotel breakfast room, they had these newspapers laying out. So I'm like, you know, what's, what's you this? You peaked so, like an edit. So I peaked like this. Is, the New York Times <laughs> was on the front. They had a big picture, something in the Middle East. Yes. So I have a theory uh, of the Middle East. I've created that over a couple of years now. And this is just another Middle East stuff. It's not going to be terribly different from all the other Middle Eastern crises we've seen in the last 17 years. The U.S. has been at war in the Middle East since 17 years. It's not a new war. It's been an ongoing war for 17 years. It's nothing new under the sun. But you can only do that when you kind of put this stuff in perspective. Now, what you raise is, is maybe I have to mirror that over to you, how to sell the long formats. That's a different question. Do you need to hook, and that's a question really to you, as, as a manager, as a CEO of a, a media company, do you have to have news events to hook the larger pieces on? Or can you just do the larger pieces by, by themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would disagree with you that you start with a general theory and then maybe kind of go to the events after. Because I think you at least need some sense of events to know what theory to look for, in a sense. So I would put it a little bit like this. I'm not an expert on natural sciences. You know more about natural sciences than I do. But let's say before you have a general idea, a theory of gravity, for example, I can only imagine that this starts with seeing an apple fall from the tree, right? That's the event that kind of triggers you. Now, maybe this is a, a bad metaphor, but my, my general sense is that on the surface, there are things happening from there, you start to hypothesize why is this happening. You can't start with the, the why first because you don't know what you're looking for. Uh, let me give you an, a, a, one of my favorite examples. Who saw the movie um, The Big Short? Or read the book, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> the, the Big Short. It was a book. It was also a movie. So uh, not many people. Okay, so The Big Short is about the, 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 the financial crisis written by Michael Lewis. And it's about the guy who saw the crisis coming, basically. He, and he was one of the only people who saw this, this financial meltdown in 2009 coming. The way he did it was basically what we try to do in our journalism is to kind of look at the foundational aspects. He didn't, because if he looked at the news, basically, he saw houses pricing going, houses, housing prices going up. He saw uh, markets booming. Everybody was positive. Everybody uh, was loaning money. Nobody uh, saw there was any problem. 
And he started to uh, say, well, fundamentally, there is a problem. And he started to bet against, this is why it's called the big short. He started to get bet against the US housing markets when everybody was like, what, are you crazy? Have you lost your minds? Look at the news. And he, said, he deliberately ignored the news for this reason. But I can imagine that this general hypothesis about the fundamentals of our financial economy um, had to start somewhere. It had to start with kind of um, seeing people uh, take out loans they can't pay, for example. And you must have examples to show for uh, to kind of start looking at the, at the right direction. So my question for you, and maybe you have some ideas on it, because this is basically what we try to do every day, is where do you start looking? What direction do you need to look to actually look at the foundational developments that shape the world around mm -hmm. us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 and you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, and it goes back to the fundamentals of epistemology. How do we know something to be true? And the guy who really discovered it was, was Popper. And, and the philosopher Popper, he said, okay, you have to have a theory a theory guides you where you look at, then you look at the specifics, and then you make a conjecture, uh, a new theory, a conjecture, and then you test it again or try to falsify again, and that's how you build that relationship. So, so there's a relationship from the events to the generators. Now, I'm a lazy guy. <laughs> I'm not constructing my own theories. Mm. I'm looking at experts who have constructed theories. So experts on the Middle East, experts on, for example, geopolitics, experts on, on science, for example, astrophysics, if I want to know something about astrophysics. So I'm lazy. That knowledge is out there, done by experts who have been investing way more time than I ever could in creating these, these theories. So in geopolitics, you have about three to four fundamental theories of, of how this stuff works. So I, I, I read these books. Sometimes these are textbooks, very boring textbooks. For me, they're interesting, but small print uh, textbooks that you get at the beginning semesters if you study a certain subject. You need to read these then textbooks. But they're actually good. They're great. Uh, sometimes... Lectures are online. You can get lectures on, sometimes great lectures on YouTube. There are certain sources where you have to pay for very good lectures. It costs you a little bit of money, but these are great lectures that give you those generators. Right. So you don't have to even find them out yourself. It's there. Yes. You just have to put it in your brain. Absolutely. Maybe we should elaborate a little bit more on what, what you mean by understanding the world. Because you had a great anecdote that you told us in, in the newsroom today, and it kind of explained the difference between kinds of understanding. Could you... Yeah. Okay. You, yeah, you, yeah. Know, you know which one I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know which one I mean. <laughs> but, but you should change that word newsroom. Maybe there's a... Oh, newsroom. We have a different wording for that, yeah. that thing, it, that room. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so it's, it's an anecdote um, that was conveyed by Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger is the right-hand man of Warren Buffett, so he's the vice chairman of, of Berkshire Hathaway, which is a big conglomerate in the U.S., and he told the following story. Uh, in 1918, so 102 years ago, when Max Planck got the Nobel Prize in physics, uh, after he got the Nobel Prize... In physics, he went across Germany from city to city and gave a lecture on quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is that theory in physics that describes how the smallest particles move, subatomic particles, how they behave. And it's a theory that's still very correct today. 
down to the 12th digit after, after the comma. It's very a, it's a great theory. It it's has what, it's what the test it of gave time. him the it was, that it gave, gave him, him the, the Nobel, Nobel Prize of yes. quantum mechanics. So very complicated formula. But he went from city to city, from town to town in Germany, and gave that same lecture every time. Now, he didn't drive from city to city himself. He had a driver, a chauffeur. And that chauffeur would sit in the hall, just like we sit today. He would sit in the first row, and this guy would listen to the, to the lecture. And after about 20 times, he knew the talk by heart. So one night, they were in Munich. The chauffeur, before the... The lecture, the chauffeur went up to Max Planck and said, Professor Planck, aren't you getting tired of delivering the same lecture every time? How about we switch roles tonight here in Munich? I go up on stage, I know the talk by heart, I can give the lecture, and you can sit in the first row, you can even wear my chauffeur's hat, you know, that would give us a little bit of variety in life, and you could relax at least one night. And Professor Planck was thinking about it for you know, a couple of minutes, and then he said, okay, let's try it tonight. So uh, the chauffeur went up on stage, and he delivered a one-hour presentation on quantum mechanics. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to imagine, you know, they didn't have PowerPoint slides yet, so you had to write all the diff difficult formulas on a blackboard, and everything went well until the very end, then because somebody raised the question. And then the chauffeur got really angry and said, never would I have thought that in such an advanced city like Munich, somebody could ask such a simple question. I will ask my driver to answer it. <laughs> so this displays, again, this is from Charlie Munger, but Charlie Munger kind of separates the world into people who know, who really have an understanding, and people who just pretend to know, who really don't have a clue, but can, can talk a great talk. So, and there are a lot of chauffeurs out there, and you probably know exactly what I mean. In your field of business or whatever, you know exactly. A couple of names flash up, so these are chauffeurs. So make a big, you know, make a big round around those chauffeurs and don't become one yourself. So this is the definition of real knowledge, real understanding versus being a chauffeur. And, you know, sadly, a lot of journalists are chauffeurs because they report on stuff without understanding. They never have, they don't have time, it's not their fault, because they have re to report on so many different issues per day, per week, per month, that they will never be able to develop real knowledge in their field. And these are chauffeurs, and chauffeurs are dangerous because they're, they can be very eloquent, but since they don't know shit, they're dangerous. So that's what I expect from journalists, that when they write about a piece, that they really try to go as deep as they can, to learn as much as they can, and even if the reporting, even in a long format, that covers only 5% of the knowledge, it'll still show in the text. You will see if the journalist really understands it, even if he doesn't spell it out, what, what else he knows. But that's what I, what I mean with understanding. Uh, one of our correspondents in, uh, um, this afternoon raised the question of community that news creates. Now, there's even a, a whole theory um, that the reason why we have national identities or national communities that we see ourselves as part of one country is 
partly due to, this is a theory of Benedict Anderson, who um, uh, wrote a book called Imagined Communities. And his basic theory is that news helps create this national sphere, because most news is about this national sphere. Uh, we have national politics, and we have national sports, and we have national entertainment and stuff like that, and that creates this national identity for us to be part of, basically. Uh, we feel Dutch largely because of the news we follow. So she raised a question, and I thought it was a great question. If you stop doing this, and if you stop having this common idea of what is happening around us, and these common subjects of conversation at the coffee machine and stuff like that, would you lose that sense of community? And what would you think? And that is a great question, and I don't have the answer for it. <laughs> it's, 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 I really don't have the answer. I don't even know whether it would be that terrible if you would lose that sense of national identity. Um, maybe it will be not such a bad thing, but let's say it will be a bad thing. Um, but I don't think it will be lose it because of that. It's my hypothesis. You had in the past, you had other identities. Maybe it was city level. If you go back before the news came on stream, before you had newspapers, you had city identities or small region identities because people interacted with each other. They traded with each other. They, uh, they, they met at town squares together. They had fun together, they went to plays together, and so on. So as long as you mingle people, there will be an exchange. And I don't think it has to be through news. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are other ways of getting people together and making them interact. For example, you have, you have an identity. If you work for a large corporation, you will have an identity on that corporation. And it's not shared by news, it's shared by collaboration. So if you work for IBM or for Microsoft, I don't know how many employees Microsoft has, maybe my guess is... Thousands. 100,000, 80,000. They will, they will have a very strong identity, mm -hmm. but it's not through bombarding them with irrelevant right. little pieces of stuff that's outside of Microsoft. It's by working together. Right, obviously. But let me, let me put it differently. News also provides us for a lot of, well, talking points. It's, it's like the weather or sports or stuff like that. It's a social thing, right? Uh, maybe even a social glue, in a sense. Uh, it gives you something to talk about with strangers, for example. Since you stopped watching the news altogether. Have you felt like uh, the same feeling people might have when they stop drinking, for example? If you're the only one at the party that's not drinking, then most of the time you leave early or people say you're, not, you're boring or so, stuff like that. Have you felt some kind of sense of social isolation because you were not following the same events or, or, or things that other people were following? I actually experienced the contrary. Mm. So when, when people start about, talk about a certain subject, uh, and I say, what is that? I, you know, I don't consume news, so can you please fill me in? And uh, people are like, what, you don't consume news? How, how does this work? And, and then you become the center of attention. All of a sudden, people start talking about, is that even possible? Is that even, is that even legal not to consume news? Is that, is that moral? How do you do it? Why? And so on. And all of a sudden, you get away from the weather and whatever happens to you know, some sports star or some presidents who met to a real conversation. Right. So I actually found it very helpful to to initiate conversations. And you can always ask, and if it really stops, uh, you just ask the people, so tell me what happened last month. What are the top five headlines last month? And they will stare at you blank. <laughs> and they will 
maybe come up with one. Well, and yeah. then you get the point. You, you actually raised an interesting point because you, you said, jokingly, obviously, uh, is it even moral not to follow the news? Now, actually, a lot of people might say it's not because you are disengaging with the world or you are disengaging with democracy. This is something a, a journalist tell me a lot. You, they complain, they say, you want people to disengage with society, basically. And in that sense, it's not moral to, 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 say, to tell people to stop following the news. What would you answer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to such a, a criticism? Yeah, and that, that is the democracy argument is the one that I hear the most. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a valid First off, it's, it's, it's a good question. Now, democracy, I don't think, depend on, on news consumption or news production. First of all, you had democracy 2,500 years ago in Athens. It wasn't a perfect democracy. Uh, only men who were older than 30 could vote, uh, who were citizens of Athens. So no slaves, no women, no immigrants. But it was some sort of a proto-democracy. It worked without the news flow. People talked, discussed topics, and then voted. Um, Then the modern liberal democracy, how we have it here in the Netherlands, how we have it in in Europe, in in the US, was based on theories of Montesquieu, Rousseau, John Locke, and so on, these thinkers. This was way before the news stream, the news flow, the news avalanche we have today. So somehow they conceived of a way of a democracy that still is with us today without that important piece of news, how journalists want to, you know, be, be called themselves, very important. So apparently you don't need it. Even the, the thinkers of democracy, of the liberal democracy, didn't think it was necessary to consume massive amounts of news. Now, if you look at, and here's a third argument, if you look at the quality of our discussion in democracy, and you can look across many countries, that quality of the discussion really went down in the last 20 years, while the news flow went up. There's more news than ever. So there's a disconnect there. It actually, if the theory was right, that you need news consumption, the more the better, uh, the, the quality of the discussion would have gone up. It really has gone down. So I believe that you can have, you can be a good Democrat without consuming news, as long as you try to reasonably assess how you elect people to the parliament, how you reasonably assess, um, we have in Switzerland these referendums and so on, we, get, we have to vote every 10 minutes about something in Switzerland. Uh, but we get the text, and this is gonna be the, the proposed law, so say yes or no to it, so I can make a reasonable assessment about that. So I think I'm a better Democrat by looking at it very objectively than just Googling around or listening what Journalists tell me what I should vote or elect. Mm-hmm. So I think it doesn't need it, but we need a certain amount of exchange. What we need definitely is, is investigative journalists, so people who look and observe how the powerful guys act. But that doesn't have to be in the news format. It can be, it can be long formats or it can be books, and it doesn't even have to be time-sensitive. If a scandal happens, let's say in the city here, in, in, uh, somewhere in the, in the Netherlands, or if a scandal happens in somewhere in, the, in any country, it can be a week later, a month later, as long as it gets discovered, it's fine. If you look at um, the Watergate scandal that cost Richard Nixon the presidency, it developed over three and a half years. 
The news pieces were very long. I counted the number of words. Huge articles by these guys. So there's not the news snippets. These were long articles. Yes, they appeared in a newspaper, the Washington Post, but they could have appeared in some other format. They could even have appeared as a book six months later. It would still have cost Nixon the job. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be that daily, time-sensitive, pushy thing. It's actually better if it's a little bit distant, more reflective and longer. Yeah, you, you talk a lot about um, how most news is outside your circle of influence, to, to put it like that. Like uh, wildfires in Australia, terrorist attack there, the election of Donald Trump. It's not something I can actually influence, do anything yeah. about it. So, so it, in, in some sense, news kind of conveys some sense of powerlessness. You, all, you see all these events going on and you can't, can't do anything um, uh, about it. Is that one of the reasons why you also um, advise people not to follow the news? Because you get a, a sense of powerlessness about the world? No, it, that's, that's not it, but it's, it's more of a philosophical stance. So the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers, especially the Stoic philosophers, which was one of the schools uh, in, in 2,300 to 2,000 years ago, they said you can divide the world up in certain things you have power over and certain things you don't have any power over. You have no influence on certain things. And they had this beautiful image of uh, the, uh, the, the, somebody who has an arrow and a bow. And the guy, the archer, he can pick, the, he can select, this is the bow I'm going to take, this is the arrow I'm going to pick, this is the target I'm going to pick, this is how steady I hold the, the arrow and the bow, but the moment you let go of that arrow, anything can happen. Everything is outside of your control. So at one point, you have super control over almost everything, and the next moment, you lost control, and anything can happen. So a wind can blow the arrow off course. And if you look at the news today, you have, and, it, and, and that's what the philosophers also said, it's totally idiotic, they didn't put it in these words, but it's totally idiotic to be concerned about things you have no influence over. So if you look at news today, 99% of the stuff you read in the, the news, you know, the, the classic, juicy little, uh, funny little news stories, 99% is outside of your circle of control. You have absolutely no influence over it. You have no influence over Donald Trump unless you're a U.S. citizen and can vote. Uh, I have no influence over him, so I shouldn't be concerned about this. So this is a philosophical stance. Be concerned about the stuff you can have influence over it and leave the rest away. Now this sounds very unromantic and potentially politically incorrect because you hear a lot of bad things that's happening on this planet. Disasters, people dying from earthquakes, from car crashes, airplane crashes, um, political persecution, and so on. And I have no influence over these things. But at a certain point, you have to stop being concerned about everything because you cannot be concerned about everything. The day only has 24 hours. And life is complicated as it is. If you have a family and children, it gets even more complicated. And then you have a job, and then you should sleep also a few hours a day. You cannot be concerned about every bad thing that happens on this planet. So you have to somewhere make the cut. And I'm gonna go as far as I can, be being concerned about, and the rest you leave aside, and you pick your areas to be concerned about. And 
be aware that probably bad things happen on other planets too. And we're, we're in a lot of situation, we don't have reporters on other planets yet. But if you had that, more bad stuff we would, we would hear also, good stuff. But we would be concerned about even more. So because we only have 24 hours, pick the topics where we have control over it and do something there and leave the rest aside. It's very unromantic, it sounds brutal, it sounds inhumane, but that's the only, there's, uh, there's no alternative. Right. Here's probably the topic that I find myself disagreeing with you most. And I'll try to explain why. Obviously, when you look at the news and you see the Australian wildfires, for example, there I don't know if you know. You told me this afternoon. <laughs> there are big fires in Australia. Now, obviously, this is something out of my sphere of influence. I, I can't, I'm not there. I don't know anybody there. I can't do anything about it. I, I can go there maybe and uh, help... Um, help the firefighters or something like that, or maybe I can donate some money, but generally you would agree this is a typical example of outside my uh, sphere of influence. At least this is uh, the image of the world that actually the news portrays. But now, and I totally agree with you that getting a deeper understanding of how the world works is, is actually what we need to do. But when you do, you actually see your circle of influence expand. And then you realize... Well, actually, those events far away in the world are not that outside of my circle of influence at all, in a sense that they are connected to me, my consumption habits, my uh, mobility habits, uh, my uh, carbon dioxide uh, emissions, etc., etc. I have something to do with these events on the other side of the planet. And this is actually uh, uh, something that we struggle with at the correspondent. The more you dig deep into these structural realities, the more you see that all these things and all of us and all our behaviors somehow connect in, in a certain way. But here's my last question. Um, once you realize that actually my behavior here in the Netherlands has everything to do with these events in Australia. And, and my um, uh, decisions in the future about um, uh, my carbon emissions, if I uh, buy solar panels or not, if I drive a car or not, all those things might worsen the situation there. Wouldn't it be A, wrong to say, ah, it's outside of your circle of influence, just ignore it, you can't do anything about it. And basically also, not just wrong, but antithetical to what you are trying to convey, which is a deeper understanding of how all this reality in the world connects with each other. What would you, what would you say to that? And, and this is a very valid argument, and, and really almost everything is connected. I mean, you, you can even try to remove Trump from office by you know, going over to the U.S. and distribute leaflets or something, uh, even though you're not a U.S. citizen, but you can start doing stuff. I mean, Russia tries to influence. So a lot of people outside the, the, the U.S. citizens try to influence uh, elections and vice versa. So everything is connected. The problem with that is the butterfly effect. So the butterfly theory is a butterfly somewhere out in one part of the world flaps its wings and then a tornado appears somewhere in the Midwest in the US. Yes, you can somehow construct a line, but it's a long line. And we have an influence on everything, but how efficient can you do more good in the world if I have a, a closer connection to the stuff I can influence? And this is how I try to act is where I have a, a closer connection to stuff, and that is in 
my neighborhood, in my town. There I can move certain things. There I have a bigger influence, a more direct influence. That's where I focus my work. I don't say that connection doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, consumer behavior has a huge impact on how companies shape uh, their behavior. So it is valid. But where do you draw the line? Right. Again, we have That's 24 hours. <laughs> if everything is interconnected and we have only 24 hours, where do you draw the line of making inferences of your behavior right now to influence things on the other side of the planet or well, on other planets? Let, let, me, let, me, let me put it, because that's obviously the hardest question to answer, but let me put it very simple with, a, with, a, with just one example. Um, uh, let's say in your direct influence, you uh, can uh, decide what to buy, for example, and you can buy uh, this phone or this phone, or you can not buy a phone at all, for example, something like that. And now because of news journalism, we know that the people working on this iPhone in my pocket uh, are suppressed or are underpaid or um, are suicidal because of their jobs. Now, this information, you could say it's far away, uh, I, I have, don't have any influence over these, of the lives of these people, but it could make you decide not to buy this phone sure. or an, another phone without knowing these events or about these people far away, you might make the wrong decision in your direct circle of influence because you're missing information from circles far away. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree with you. So we will always come back to understanding the world. So to understand these generators. So the more you understand these generators, the more you can probably assess if a behavior of yours has a big influence or a small influence or a zero influence or even a negative influence. Right. So as long as, if you try to understand the world a little bit better each day, each month, each year, I think the better a person you become in terms of influencing the world for the better or at least try to reduce the negative influence you have on the world. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, let's go to you um, because we have some time left. And we can talk for hours about this subject, obviously. But uh, maybe you have some questions for Rolf as well. Um, I think uh, you're right about the news. It's uh, uh, fast consuming, like uh, fast food, uh, for instance. But what do you? Um, I consider the, uh, the correspondent not as a news factory, but as the content uh, factory. So they make, they make context every day. And I feel it's more slow sugar for the mind. Um, can you um, react on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's why I'm here. That's why I support what, what, what you guys are doing. That's why I think it's so great that you, you, you do what you're doing because you go deep. You have these long formats. So this is one example of a few examples. Do you see a couple of startups now, companies like, not like yours, but trying to do similar definitely, things definitely. In, yeah. in, in different, and you can explain that more. I, I see it in Switzerland, I see it in Germany to have subscription or membership paid, intelligent people reporting deep, long formats. So this is not news. This is good stuff. Um, I feel like you talk about the news as if it sort of doesn't affect you. Um, maybe it doesn't because you live in a safe country and you're employed. But um, for example, you said, yeah, there's something happening in the Middle East right now. But if you live in the Middle East, then you might have to follow the news day to day because it affects your safety. So 
doesn't your standpoint also come sort of from a position of privilege, maybe? Yeah, great question. Actually, That's a question that was asked um, this afternoon as well from our correspondent mm -hmm. in India. Yeah. Great question. And relevance is a personal matter. What is the news media, especially the global news media, CNN and, and, and these guys, they portray relevance as something they decide. They say, this is relevant, you have to know this. But relevance is a really personal matter. So to somebody in Syria or somewhere in the Middle East, that is highly relevant information. To me, it is not relevant information. To me, something else is very relevant. So what I have is this construct, it's a construct by, again, Charlie Munger, uh, of the circle of competence. So the circle of competence is where you really want to know everything. Uh, that's where you want to be above average in terms of skills or where it's really life-threatening. That's your circle of competence. That's where you should know everything. It's not so important how big that circle is. It's important that you know roughly uh, where, the, uh, where the boundaries are of that circle. But you have certain circles of competence, and that's how I define relevance. Whatever fits into that circle of competence, and whatever is outside is, is, is irrelevant. So relevance is a personal matter. Now, the problem is we don't have a gut feeling for relevance. The first impulse when we see a piece of news is always, if it's highly visible and flashy and so on, it's, we think it's relevant. And then we have to step back and maybe think for a second and we can decide whether this is relevant. So we don't have a gut feel for relevance, but relevance is there, but it's a very personal matter and you define the relevance, not some global news organization defines relevance of a piece of information. I, I just want to elaborate a little bit more on this point because I think this is a really good point you are making, uh, which is a lot of people have the privilege to kind of ignore a lot of stuff because their life is quite okay already. So what becomes relevant uh, is a luxury in a sense. Now, but still, I could maybe live without not knowing um, what is happening in Iran or Iraq right now. But I would like to hope that people know this when they're, for example, voting to uh, people in power and know what's happening there and then maybe also know the stance of the politicians who are voting into power, what they think should be done about these issues, etc. So don't you think that if you completely personalize relevance, that you completely take out politics out of, um, uh, out of your definition of relevance. I think here we come back to that democracy question. How much should we know about the world uh, to make democratic decisions? Mm. Now, there's also a myth um, in democracy. Um, and the myth is democracy will decide everything, our politicians, us, we as voters, we as uh, electors, we will decide everything what's happening in this country, which is a complete myth. Democracy decides maybe 20% of what's happening in this country. The rest is outside influences you have no control over. So, yes, it's, it's important to be democratic and to know as much as possible about the people you elect to parliament, but it's not that's super important as we think it is. For example, we never voted on the internet. 
We never voted on nuclear weapons. We never voted on the European Central Bank, or we in Switzerland, we have a Swiss National Bank. We can't even vote these guys in there who, who make the monetary decisions. Uh, for example, how, how the stock market behaves will have a huge impact on the jobs of, of many of us. You know, if the economy is booming or not, most of it is outside of the control, democratic control. So I would say about 80% is outside of the democratic control. Yes, there's 20% we can influence. And we try to make the, the best decision as possible. But again, you can spend way too much time on this stuff and go crazy about optimizing the perfect person to vote into the parliament who knows exactly what he or she would do in Iraq or in Iran if she would be the president of Iraq. Yes, you can optimize. Um, but again, we have 24 hours. We have a life. It's complicated. We should sleep also. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, I'm wondering about, it's kind of a follow-up from the last question. I think it's also a pretty privileged and excluding thing to say you can just start reading difficult and long articles. You need to be quite highly educated to understand those articles. You need to be able to read, for starters. And if I look around me, I see a lot of friends who can cope with a little bit of news just because they're watching a little bit, a little bit of news. But imagine giving everyone long articles. Doesn't that alienate them even further from something they already find difficult? How would you make this inclusionary mm-hmm, in a way? Mm-hmm. I get the question, but it's for me a little bit of an extreme question because we're, I wrote the book for a European audience, maybe an American audience, uh, people who are educated, who f- can follow arguments. And, and I think that's the majority. Now, there are some people who can't read. There are some people who... Um, might not be able to follow an argument. But then the question is, should they rather watch some stupid news stream or should they maybe watch a simple documentary on a certain topic, which again, will tend to go deep. So I would say stop the news um, anytime, even for people who, who can't read, stop watching that. It's, it's going to be free crap, basically and try to give them an understanding that goes a little bit deeper, if that's possible. But again, the majority of us, the, the big majority can follow good arguments. 95%, 99% of, 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 of our society. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's 95%, I don't know. Next question. Sorry, I'm not trying to be selfish, but I have two questions, if it's possible. <laughs> two, two short Quite ones. Short questions. First of all, um, without throwing the child away with the bathwater, you kind of need news events for getting curious about topics, right? Because if I don't read into an event about what's happening, then I try to get a follow-up question and then I start reading into it. So before making a theory or understanding the world, I need an event in the first place. So you, you say you need a trigger? to then go deep, and we had that discussion before, so do you need to come from the events to the generators, to the understanding of the world, or do you start with the understanding of the world and then go up to the generators? Again, you probably need both. I try to stay away from from the news because I define my circles of competence, so I know what I want to look for, and that defines my search space. But shouldn't you train people to be more curious and selective instead of just stop following the news in that case? No, I would, I would, sorry, I would still tell them, 
try to find out what your circles of competence are or what you're really passionate or interested or you want to become above average or you want to really change the world to the better or whatever. Define those first. That's an individual choice. And then go to the best sources. And the best sources, I guarantee you, are not news. Um, the last part about maybe, I'm not going to convince you, of course, but like if uh, last year we had the protests of the teachers, the farmers, uh, a lot of events about people that are just like after several years of politics, be like things are going wrong in this country without following the news. I wouldn't know that their teachers were facing problems, that they were not getting enough pay, that they had to do overwork. I had to follow the news to get up in a story like that. If I ever have kids, I want them to get good education. So I need the news to understand that there are th things wrong in our educational system. So that involves my choice in politics. So how would you replace news if I need to know stuff like this going on? Can I, can I add one? That's because it's an interesting question. Um, uh, for example, the Me Too movement had to start with, let's say, a couple of people coming out with their experiences uh, with men, abusing them, etc. Uh, and then more people came out, and more people came out. And then it kind of um, became a movement, and then it, 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 it showed, eventually, it shed light on a structure, basically. The generators you were talking about. This has deeper societal structures be below it. But it had to start with these kinds of events, like protests or stuff like that. So if you um, stop paying attention to these people speaking out at the, f uh, uh, the first time or the protesters that uh, p uh, put a, 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 an issue on the, on the political or, or the news agenda, then uh, wouldn't you miss the opportunity to, to actually uh, see these more fundamental injustices that they are part of? Two responses to that. Number one, Yes, you can follow the news or you can just wait until the longer formats are here, maybe a month later, that you will then cover. I, I presume you covered uh, those demonstrations, maybe in, in the correspondent. Sometimes books come out that... Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm such a bookworm. <laughs> Sometimes books come out that bring up a new, new subject, and then people start discussing it. So it doesn't necessarily have to start with a news piece. It can start with a long format. It, has, it will start somewhere. For an important subject, I'd rather wait until a meaty treatment is here that gives me already the interactions, again, the generators, the understanding, then following the news <laughs> in the hopes that I will pick up some new big scandal that have, will have huge societal implications. Right. But the question is, again, it's, it's, it's really, that's what you're trying to do, what this gentleman just says. Yeah, is, is of course. Correct? Obviously, I think one um, difference that we can make here is the consumption of news versus the production of news. Uh, I don't think you're ever advocating to stop uh, the production of news altogether. It's, it's more on the consumption side. You also yeah. talked about this in, in, in the afternoon, that it is more the consumer part of this, of this industry than the producing part of this industry. And obviously, I think we need protests and events and, and people speaking out to, to as journalists on the production side to go uh, deeper where you want to kind of start following it. So it's different spheres. You have the consumer, you have the producer of these inf this information and both need different ingredients uh, and different timing. Maybe... Um, now, now uh, I just want to say one thing. So I'm, I'm an extremist. <laughs> as you can probably tell, you don't have to follow 
my guidelines. I know I'm not here to preach. Just by reducing the number of times you go online to check some news, uh, or you decrease the sources of news, you already make a lot of headway towards a better behavior. So you don't have to follow me down to the last word. And also, just try it out. Um, if it doesn't work for you, you can always go back to the news consumption. <laughs> that stuff is going to be there. The headlines are going to be there for you. They will take you back uh, with open arms, those news <laughs> producers. So just Definitely. test it out. Don't take my word for it. More questions. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, for short news, it's always for free. But for the correspondent, for all the newspapers, you have to pay. Uh, should it news be some the, the news producers be something like uh, civil servants? Public services, you mean? So paid by tax money, taxpayer money. Maybe that's something question, for you. Uh, oh, your, no, your take on it. No, uh, my preferred model uh, would be um, that the people, citizens l like us pay uh, for um, uh, the, the journalism we produce. That's the most independent model I can think of, especially also because it's the, it's the best way to spread your sources of income the farthest, right? Like, um, it's, you become much um, more independent as a platform that is uh, financed by 60,000 small sources of money than if it was one government subsidy financing you. So I would not opt for that, no. But I do think the that's why we have a soft paywall at the correspondent. This is actually tied to the public service idea that people pay our journalism so we can make it, but then it's f freely available if you share it with, with anybody. So anybody can read all the stuff we do, even if they are not a paying member, because it has a public function as well. It shouldn't be, I think, it shouldn't be, it should be paid for, but it shouldn't be behind a paywall. But, but there's, it's one very important distinction you, you shed light on. It's free news versus somewhere you have a paywall. Generally, whatever is free is supported by advertising. They need to sell advertising next to it to somehow monetize it. And whenever you have that model of purely advertising-driven content, it's generally going to be crap because it's clickbait. They want you to focus the attention to stay on that platform, to click on on that platform, to get your attention as much as possible with sex stories, with scandalous stories, because that's what, that, that what hooks your attention. And generally, whatever is free on the internet in terms of news is generally crap. So you have way better quality when you have behind a paywall, automatically. Um, I go along with you a long way, and I've stopped reading news myself also for a long time ago. And I think mainly the websites and the, the apps, I think that's the free news you're talking about. The reason why I went back to having a subscription to a newspaper in the end was that I, and that's also why I'm not a member of the correspondent, I'm sorry, is that I want to to be confronted more with views that are not according to my worldview. And I think that if you select everything that you read yourself according to your circle of competence, isn't there a big risk that you're again going for the confirmation bias because you're reading on the things that you're interested in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the idea of the circle of uh, competence is exactly not that. It's exactly that you, 
you understand the world as objectively as you can, which means automatically that you have to include the disconfirming evidence, the evidence that goes against your favorite theory of it. So the idea of the circle of competence includes that you take in as many perspectives as possible, even if they're dangerous to your favorite ideas. So exactly not that, yes. Yeah, that's my answer. What new, what, can I ask a question back? What newspaper do, did you subscribe to? NRC, and why not the Telegraaf? Yeah, I could have done that too. Mm-hmm. I also like to be informed on a weekend. Oh, no, okay, yeah. <laughs> but even, even more different views in the Telegraaf. Let's do one, one, final, one final question, because I see so many people there. There's one burning question. <laughs> um, well, uh, actually, um, Rob, you made a, an, uh, a promise during the conversation, and you I didn't... Did? You didn't uh, live up to it, so I will oh. do it now. <laughs> Come back to uh, the, the Trump. Yes. Ah, okay. We've heard so many uh, superior arguments from Mr. Dobley about the news, um, and I wonder then you are very why right. you had a relapse on the Trump <laughs> presidency. Thank you for this question. You followed the, the election of Donald Trump. Why? <laughs> yeah, you know, did you have to bring it up? <laughs> so in 2016, I had read Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, 20 years ago when he came out. Um, because Fundamental that, insights. Into, yeah, yes. it's, it's, now I had, a, I had a publishing company uh, and I founded this with friends and we were doing book summaries. And uh, in terms of negotiation books, this is one of the classics, Trump's Art of the Deal. So I knew the book for a long time. And uh, just already looking at the, the cover of the book, it was like, I don't like this face. And he was very young at that time when he published that book. And then that Trump name came up again. So there's this guy, Trump, and he's running for president. I'm like, what is this guy here from the Art of the Deal, from this book? And yeah, that's the guy. And, and I got drawn back into... I couldn't believe it, you know, checking the New York Times, and apparently the guy is tweeting like crazy, so I was checking out his tweets, and, and after about two weeks, I had to stop myself again. I realized I'm back in there again, I'm hooked again, so I need to become sober. And that's when I realized, you know, after two weeks, I, I cut it again, and, and since then I've been sober. You know he got elected, right? Yeah, I know You that. know he I got know. elected, okay. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that. Rolf Dobelli. Well... And Rob Weinberg. Right. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Did Rolf Dobelli inspire you to change your news habits? Why not start today by joining the correspondent as a member? You can choose whatever you want to pay for your membership. So I hope to see you on our platform soon.